What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion on this uh, beautiful Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. And if you have a question about the Catholic faith, maybe you're uh, trying to get a good answer for that, an accurate answer as to what the church actually teaches, we can help you with that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, we have a special phone number just for you, and that number is 1-205-271. Two nine eight five, And, of course, you can always send us an email if you would rather do that. The address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box, if you would, please. Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and uh, we will take it from there. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing decent. Thank you. We're getting kind of excited here this week because this is the week for our annual EWTN Catholic Radio Conference. It's always a blast. I enjoy it every year. So much fun. We get to see uh, members of the EWTN family, our wonderful AM and FM affiliates from all over the United States. Uh, we'll do some of our programs uh, live from the uh, the Hyatt here in town on Thursday. Looking forward to all that. I can't wait. It's going to be a good one. We're going to lead off here with a... Uh, This is a tough email, I I must say. I read it ahead. It's from uh, Andrea. She also calls herself Andy, and she says, Hello, I was abused by my father. I am currently in RCIA, a problem I'm having trouble recognizing the authority of the maleness of God, Jesus, and the clergy. This is laying on my heart and keeping me from fully submitting to God. Please help, Andy. Yeah, wow, Andy. I am. I am so sorry. I, I mean, my heart really goes out to you. Mm. And and you know, nothing I say is going to be able to resolve your trauma. And this is trauma that you're experiencing. Yeah. So I, I really understand, and I appreciate where you're coming from. So I, I'm, I'm sure you know the Catholic teaching that 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 God has no biological sex, right? God is not a man. And actually, Scripture says that explicitly. God is not a man. Uh, and there are historical reasons why the masculine pronoun is used to refer to God in sacred scripture and tradition, but that you, you shouldn't, you, uh, wh- whatever language we use of God, anytime we speak about God at all, the church tells us that all of our language is, is at best analogous, and that there is an infinite distance between any predication, any statement that we make about God and the reality of God himself. And so there's a whole approach to Catholic theology and spirituality. It's called apophatic or negative theology that says one way of approaching the Godhead is rather than by affirmation, it's to, it's to whatever you can affirm about creatures, that would include men, 
uh, you, you can deny that attribute of God in some sense because he's not this and he's not that and he's not the other thing. Or God is not this, God is not that, God is not the other thing, but, but wholly transcendent and entirely other. Um, and though God is entirely other, God's also eminent within us. St. Augustine says that God is uh, more interior to me than I am to myself. And so this is a God that I think if you, if you wrestle with Whatever the, whatever the ascription is, some kind of anthropomorphic depiction of God, and for you it's maleness, uh, for other people it may be something else, uh, the apophatic approach, the negative approach that says, you know, whatever we might say of God, really the, the, the reality of God is utterly different and infinitely transcends whatever we can say about God. So that might be helpful. You know, when it comes to the, um, to the maleness of Christ, you know, the person of Christ is a... Uh, a, a contradiction of so many values that the world and culture have have held historically. And of course, in the ancient world, as often is the case today, uh, the ideal of masculinity is, uh, you know, the, the, the tough guy who can beat up and take down his enemies. And uh, uh, empathy is sometimes seen as a kind of weakness. I actually came across a, a non-Catholic podcast the other day uh, purporting to be by Christians from another tradition that maintained that Christians ought not to strive to be nice right and it it I was think it was kind of underscoring this kind of image of, of, of masculinity and power and whatever else you might think and when I looked at the person of Jesus you know Jesus's whole ministry was precisely about laying down his authority um, though in the very form of God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but um, took on the nature of a servant and was obedient uh, in humility unto death on a cross. And it is in this respect that we are to imitate Christ, right? The, the, that, that laying down of one's life uh, for, for the weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized. And, you know, that's not, that may not be an image or, or a set of values that you associated with abusive masculinity. Yeah. Well, we do appreciate that. And uh, Andy, thank you so much uh, for, your, uh, for your email. Here's a uh, question here from Brian. My mom believes there is no need to confess sins to a priest because we can, quote, go directly to God. And she feels the verse, nobody comes to the Father but by me, negates the need for a priest. How do you address this? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, uh, with respect to the no one comes to the Father but by me, uh, this is your mom. I'm assuming that when you were growing up, your mom taught you about Jesus. And probably if you came to faith in Christ, it, it may very well have been through the, the ministry of your mother. Mm-hmm. Well, why did she bother? Ah. Right? Why did she bother? Yeah. Uh, if, if there's no need for human intermediaries, why bother? But, of course, St. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that those who minister for the gospel are co-laborers with Christ as if God were making his appeal through them. Uh, when Jesus made provision for handing on the faith, he, he specifically empowered individuals, persons, um, with, uh, with the task of handing on the deposit of faith and baptizing and making disciples. So the, the way God functions, the way the gospel uh, uh, perpetuates itself and extends itself through the world is through human agents. That's by God's design. I'm going to bring that back to the question of confession after the break. 
Brian, sit tight. We're going to continue this uh, this question, and we'll also go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Lines are open for you at 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Stay with us. Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews in progress here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Before the break, we were tackling a question from Brian watching us today on YouTube. I'll just restate the question. Uh, he says, my mom believes there is no need to confess sins to a priest because we can, quote, go directly to God. And she feels the verse, nobody comes to the Father but by me, negates the need for a priest. How do you address this? Yeah, so we, we spoke a little bit about nobody comes to the Father but by me before the break, and I pointed out that in the gospel, Christ absolutely explicitly makes provision to use human instruments to sure. bring people to God. Now, mm-hmm. now it, the Catholics believe that no one comes to the Father but through Christ, in the sense that it's Christ who gave His life to atone for our sins, and it's the grace of Christ that infuses our lives. It's, I don't, you know, I don't get the grace of Mary or the grace of my priest or, you know, the grace of Saint Francis, or I get the grace of Christ in my soul, and it's the person of Christ to whom I'm to be assimilated and. And uh, it's the purpose of person of Christ that I'm supposed to interiorize, to walk as he walked and live as he lived and order my life according to him and have a relationship with. That's I'm saved by Christ in that sense, but he still transfers this to me. He transmits this to me through human instruments. Now, when it comes to the question of confessing to a priest, there's a sense in which I'm going to agree with your mother that, that we all are to confess our sins directly to God, and that's actually the Catholic position. Christ commands that we pray, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's the daily prayer of the Catholic in the privacy of his own room, apart from any mediation by a priest. And uh, and the Psalms, of course, exhort us to confession and prayer and contrition. So this is always part of Catholic spirituality, to go directly to God. So the question then is, why the priest? Why the sacrament of confession? Well, the fact that God can give us grace apart from a sacrament, which Catholics acknowledge that, we don't deny that, doesn't obviate the value of a sacrament, right? See, what the sacrament does is it it kind of focalizes that grace and attaches it to a tangible sign. So the person who receives the sacrament has certainty that the grace has been extended because it comes with a a sign that God has made a promise to, right? Mm -hmm. So when I go to the confessional and I confess my sins, and the priest says, I absolve you of your sins in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is, he's not making an abstract general statement that, hey, God forgives penitent sinners. No, he's been authorized to forgive sins in God's name. It's not like God can't do it without him. God can certainly do it without him. But he does this for my benefit. It's, it's there to be a psychological prop to me to encourage me in my life of faith. Right. Uh, I've told this story many times. When I was in college, there was a prayer chapel at the university, and people would go in there and pray privately, and they would write out prayer requests and leave them on a table for others to pray. It was a Protestant school, no confession available. And uh, as I would spend time in the prayer chapel, I would notice that people would write out what basically amounted to confessions of sin. You know, oh, pray that God will help me with this problem. I've got this issue. Pray, uh-huh. I've got this temptation. Pray for me. Well, clearly they wanted mediation. Yeah, They were reaching out to others to intercede with God on their behalf, and they felt that need to share with another human being anonymously. But I've often reflected how much more comforting it would have been to those uh, tortured souls if in that self-doubt and worry and anxiety and maybe guilt, uh, if, a, if, a, if a voice authorized to speak for God had come to them and said, it's all good, 
we've got this. You're forgiven. Yeah. And that's, see, that's the value of the confessional. Uh, there's another value in the confessional as well, and that is that the practice of confession, the habit of confession in one's life, forces you to make an honest examination of conscience. That's what you're doing there. Like, you've made an examination of conscience. That fact alone is inherently sanctifying in a way that a kind of general, personal, private confession is not. So, you know, as an evangelical, for example, before I was Catholic, I, I was taught that all of my righteousness was as filthy rags, and I was totally depraved, and everything I did was hateful to God. And so confession could often take the form of, oh, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, I'm a wretch, you know, which can quickly devolve into a kind of self-loathing, to be mm, honest with you. Yeah. But as a Catholic, that's not what we confess. We don't confess being a wretch. We confess, well, you know, I... I, I stole a pen from the from the uh, uh, the supply room at the office. You know, I I, I I I lied on my taxes. I didn't lie on my taxes, by the way. You know, if any IRS <laughs> agents are, are listening. You know, yeah, I yeah. I uh, you know I, I spoke unkindly to my child. Wh- whatever it might be, you enumerate specific acts, and that's the orientation of the confessional. So you it really t- makes you focus on the stuff that you need to change. Now, when it comes to change, the psychologists tell us that accountability to another human being is the most effective tool for personal change. Guess what we get in confessional? Accountability to another human being. Yeah. Oh, and you remember that virtue called humility? That's deeply inculcated in the confessional because you have to bear your soul to another person. And in doing that, you are making a profound act of humility. And so none of that comes if you only rely upon private confession of sin to God. Hope that's helpful for you, Brian. uh, Thanks so much uh, for your question via YouTube today. It's called Communion here on EWTN. We have lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Here we are in October. Guess what? Guess what's coming? (laughs) Advent, Christmas, Well, we've got you covered. EWTN's Religious Catalog is your online destination for gifts and holy reminders for Advent and Christmas. I've looked. We've got some wonderful items there for you. Buy Catholic. Shop EWTNRC.com. By the way, uh, you can now receive regular emails from EWTN's Religious Catalog. Find out what is new and happening. Visit EWTN.com. Click on the word subscribe. And then uh, you'll get a, a you know a little list of things that you can subscribe to. Choose EWTN's Religious Catalog, and you'll be all set. Call to Communion here on EWTN. That phone number again, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Chris is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Chris says, a married man can be ordained but a priest or deacon cannot get married. How can men to be laicized and get married since they still have the indelible mark on their soul from the sacrament of holy orders? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So it's not the indelible mark that makes it impossible for a man to marry as such. So it's not, it's not as though ordination you know, changes a man ontologically in such a way that it becomes a metaphysical impossibility for him to marry. That, that, that's not the case. Rather, this is, we're really following the teaching of sacred scripture here. So, you know, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, if anyone aspires to be a bishop, it's a noble task. Um, he should be above reproach. Married only once. 
temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, et cetera. So mm-hmm. we're talking about qualifications for leadership within the church. Now, okay. if, a, if a person has been laicized, a man's been laicized, he's no longer operating with that degree of leadership in the church. Right. So that, that's the barrier. It's a, it's a practical one, and it's imposed by canon law, not, not something of metaphysical necessity. Mm. Very good. And uh, Chris, thanks for watching us today on YouTube. Interesting question in our, what, seven years now, David? Eight years? I don't think this one has ever come up. This is from Roxanne from north of Edmonton. And uh, Roxanne says, Dr. Anders, I have a question regarding water witchers or water diviners. Either term makes me feel uneasy. I was wondering what the Catholic Church's stance is regarding this practice. Um, yeah, so I, I, um, I don't know if there's any specific teaching on, on water dowsing in Catholic tradition. I mean, the, the Church teaches uh, that we should not be engaged in superstitious practices. Uh-huh. And that would be, you know, attempts to manipulate unseen powers through rites and ceremonies for our own, you know, personal gain, something to that effect. Um, you know, if somebody had like a particularly good nose <laughs> and uh, literally had the ability to smell water under the ground and there was a, you know, a perfectly biological explanation for their for their uh, per- peculiar talent, I don't think that would be ruled out necessarily. You know, St. Augustine one time in, I believe it was in On Christian Doctrine, he said, how can you tell the difference between superstition and, uh, and what's acceptable? Uh-huh. And he said... Um, he gave this illustration. He said, if somebody said to you, here, eat this herb, and it will cure your stomach ache, well, that's okay, because the presumably what's being taught here, is being suggested, is that the herb has some sort of intrinsic chemical property that can counteract whatever your, your acid reflux or whatever it might be. Um, however, if somebody says, here, hang this stomach-shaped herb around your neck, <laughs> you know, and uh, and it will you know give off mystic stomach vibes. Mm. He says that's that's not allowable, and and uh, because you're relying here specifically on the the mode of signification rather than some intrinsic natural property. Sure, and we thank you so much, uh, Chris, for your question. Actually, that was not Chris; that was uh, Roxanne from north of Edmonton. It's called a communion here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Beginning today with Kevin, a first-time caller from Des Moines, listening to the great Iowa Catholic Radio. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, I have been, uh, I've embraced the Catholic faith in particular because I believe that Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. However, I'm still cloudy in the understanding of her immaculate conception and also her assumption. Could you explain those two aspects of Mary? Absolutely. I really appreciate the question. So the immaculate conception is the doctrine that Mary received the infusion of sanctifying grace, what you would normally get in baptism. Mm -hmm. She got that at the moment of her conception. That's, That's what the doctrine teaches. Now, you know, a, another way, the flip side of that is if you have sanctifying grace from the moment of your conception, you don't have original sin. Because what original sin means is the absence of sanctifying grace. Ah. That the definition of original sin is the absence of sanctifying grace. Now, she, she didn't just receive sanctifying grace, so she did receive it. 
But, you know, when you got sanctifying grace in baptism, it's sufficient to accompany you to perseverance in the faith and to salvation. But it really needs to be nurtured and cultivated um, over the course of a lifetime, and, and you can merit an increase in grace over time such that eventually you may progress to the point of not sinning at all. That's really the goal of Christian life, that you would arrive at the point where you no longer sin. Most people who leave the baptismal font are going to sin subsequently. That's why we have confession. Yes. But the saints will eventually get there with it, where they don't sin. Okay. Well, the infusion of grace into Mary's soul was such that not only was she preserved from original sin in the moment of her conception, but it was a sufficient infusion of grace, powerful enough to preserve her from actual sin throughout her life. Um, furthermore, we suffer as progeny of Adam and Eve from the wounds of original sin, which are not themselves sins. They're, they're not sins, but they're occasions of sin. They're things mm. like ignorance and moral weakness and uh, egotism and concupiscence. Mary didn't have those. So Mary didn't have disordered appetites. That's another dignity that was granted to her. So she really is imminent in sanctity um, and therefore is for us the, the model of what Christian life is supposed to look like. Uh, that's the Immaculate Conception for you. And that was given to her, by the way, in virtue of the dignity to be conferred upon her that she would become the mother of God. Um, what is the assumption? That is the doctrine that Mary was assumed into heaven body and soul after her earthly life, after her time on earth. Now, it is an open question in Catholic tradition as to whether Mary died physically before her assumption. And uh, there is a tradition in the East that says she died, and so they refer to the Assumption as the Dormition. Uh, there's a tradition in the West that she did not, and the Church is never going to resolve that. It doesn't really matter. The, the important thing is that her body uh, did not come to rot in a grave, but was taken to heaven by God. Kevin, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. While we're on the subject of Mary, this question from Jen watching us on YouTube, what is the consecration to Mary and what's the purpose of doing it? Also, why 33 days? Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So there uh, was an 18th century French saint by the name of Louis de Montfort who... Um, was let's put it this way he was a pretty darn big fan of marian devotion probably <laughs> yeah. probably the the greatest marian devotionalist ever to live and uh he he sort of gathered up the history of devotional thinking about mary and and synthesized it into something of a formula and his basic idea was that mary's intercession on our behalf is so powerful and so great that the that the person who's fully committed to submitting their lives uh, and their obedience and their fealty to the Blessed Virgin Mary could expect that she would make up, as it were, um, through her prayers, what would be lacking in her own. Mm. Right? And that doesn't, it's not, it's not a, it's in no way an excuse for not doing your part, right? And, and de Montfort was a moral rigorist. I mean, he really did urge people to holiness of life. In fact, that was part, of, part and parcel of this consecration that he advised. But the idea was that by... Blessed Virgin Mary is a particularly effective, a uniquely effective intercessor, and, uh, and an intimate relationship with her, as he put it, is the quickest, fastest path to holiness, and and uh, and and really kind of the, like the the be all and end all of Christian spirituality. 
And uh, he wanted people to do this. He advocated that people do this. And consecrating just is just set aside for a holy use. So that you, you know, every, every Catholic is supposed to have devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, you know, kind of like everybody in Alabama is supposed to be a fan of either the Tide or, you know, the, you know, War Eagle or, the, or Auburn University. Pick one. But then there are the fanatics, right? You know, yes. and, and every Catholic is devoted to Mary. Um, De Montfort's position was, you need to be one of the fanatics. You have to be on the front row at the game, buy season tickets, you know, gotcha. go all in for Mary. All right. And, uh, and, and he devised a, a, a program of preparation to make that consecration that uh, Father Michael Gately has popularized in his book, 33 Days to Morning Glory. And there it is. Uh, Jen, thanks so much for watching us on YouTube. In a moment, we'll be talking with Laura in Houston, also Jeanette in Nebraska. Lines are open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. So what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's uh, talk about that here at EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. We have a couple of lines open at the moment, 833-288-EWTN. If you call uh, right away, we can hopefully get you on today's program, 833-288-3986. Let's go to Laura now, our first-time caller in Houston, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio, AM 1430. Uh, Laura, what's on your mind today? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yes, um, I'm in the process of becoming Catholic. I went through RCIA, and now my husband's working on an annulment application for his previous marriage. And I have been really blessed by this journey, but lately I've been having a lot of doubts and um, even spiritual attacks. And a lot of the doubts have to do with Mary. And um, I just... When I pray the Salve Regina, I think that's what it's called at the end of the rosary. Every time I say our life, our sweetness, and our hope, I always think that Jesus is my Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and He is the hope. So I really struggle with this prayer, and also I want to pray the consecration to Mary, but my conscience won't let me at this point. And so I I was just hoping for some something outside of my own head on you know on this. Yeah, thanks. I really profoundly appreciate the question. Um, I'm a convert to the church. I grew up in evangelical Protestantism. I'm deeply familiar with the kind of hang-ups that Protestants have with Marian devotion when they become Catholic. And um, several th- there are a lot of things that helped me with this in my own life, um, in particular the writings of, of, uh, of St. John Henry Newman on Mary were extremely helpful, precisely because they were so very different from a lot of modern devotional uh, writing about Mary. And here's what I mean by that. Um, it's not uncommon for converts to, to run in circles in the Catholic Church where people are told, uh, people like you, uh, meet well-meaning Catholics that have a favorite devotion. And they sort of foist that on you as the be-all and end-all of Catholic life and say, you know, well, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, and you've got to do it this way. And, and the truth of the matter is, no, you don't. No, you don't. As a Catholic, there's really only one prayer— that you are obligated by law to pray, and that's the Mass. You have to go to Mass. That's it. And you have to participate in the rest of the sacramental mysteries of the Church, of course. But, I mean, the, the liturgy of the Church is what's obligatory. Outside of that, it is up to you to do what is helpful to you. And the devotions, right, these, these formulaic prayers, 
that have been passed down for centuries uh, in honor of a particular saint or a particular passage of Christ's life or something like that, um, developed outside of the liturgy. And they developed, uh, in large part, for people who didn't have good access to the liturgy because they were illiterate or they didn't have time to pray the Liturgy of the Hours with the monks. Um, and so they were, they were always conceived of as sort of paraliturgical practices uh, for the benefit of lay faithful who were otherwise unengaged in liturgical action. Mm-hmm. And, and while they're definitely a part of the Church's tradition, they're very much subordinate and parasitic on the liturgy. Um, and so they're not obligatory at all. Any of them, no, no matter how august or famous they are, you don't have to do it. You, you don't have to pray the rosary to be a Catholic. In fact, I mean, the rosary is a uniquely Latin tradition, and you, you don't find Eastern Catholics, for example, praying the rosary. That's not their tradition. They don't do it. They don't hate it. They don't oppose it. They don't do it. It's not part of their tradition. And they're still Catholics, all right? So that's helpful. You, you take up what's useful for you. Now, one thing that devotionalism, particularly for converts, can obscure— is the rich, rich heritage of Catholic spiritual theology. So there is a, there's an approach to the spiritual life within the Catholic faith that is, that is not centered on the devotions, but it's centered on a, a, a deep, interior, contemplative relationship with Christ that's aimed directly at the transformation of your personality and the sanctification of your soul. And so things like the writings of Teresa of Avila, for example, or John of the Cross, or Francis de Sales, or... Um, uh, 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 Saint, the works of Saint Augustine. I mean, these are these are an incredibly rich source for spiritual development. None of which rely explicitly on the devotional tradition, or at least not directly. Yeah. And I would encourage you to explore. Here's another one: Ignatius of Loyola and the whole realm of Ignatian spirituality, um, which is much more based upon. Uh, meditation upon scenes from the life of Christ and, and uh, sort of the imaginative placing of oneself uh, in scenes with the disciples and, and a whole host of spiritual disciplines, chief among them is the practice of the daily examination of conscience. And, and you could go on and on, right? And there's so many of these, you really ought to explore them. Um, uh, Therese of Lisieux, uh, her spirituality is one that's often very amenable to Protestants, uh, was to me when I was coming along. And interestingly, Therese, who's a doctor of the church, admits to not having liked the rosary very much. Wasn't her thing, right? Um, so that's, that's helpful. Another thing that was extremely helpful for me, uh, Newman drew a distinction between Marian dogma on the one hand and Mary devo- Marian devotions on the other. And we're obligated to hold Marian dogmas, you're not obligated to hold any particular devotion. Another thing that helped me tremendously was to understand something about the the language of Marian devotion. And I think you mentioned the Salve Regina, Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. And you yes. said, oh, that, that, that rubs me the wrong way. Isn't Jesus our light, our sweetness, and our hope? But you're absolutely correct, of course. So what do we do with that kind of language when we find it there? Here's what helped me. This is not like truth, functional, theological textbook language. Marian devotion, the language of Marian devotion, is much more akin to love poetry, the genre of love poetry. Think of the kinds of things that your husband might say to you, or that you might say to him, that are not strictly literally true. I can't live without you! Well, actually, you could, you know? (laughs) I mean, you don't want to, but you could. Right, You're everything to me! Well, no, actually, I'm not, you know? I'm important to you, right? 
But that kind of thing is characteristic of love poetry. Yes. Now, when did many of these Marian devotions develop? Well, they developed in medieval Europe um, under the influence of what we might call uh, the troubadour tradition. If you think about Maid Marianne on her balcony with, you know, that, that those conical-shaped hats with the long flowing things, oh, you yeah. know, there she is up there on her balcony, and here comes, you know, Robin, uh, and and he's, you know, he's singing and serenading with his lute, you know. Brave, brave, Sir Robin. Well, that's a different Robin. Oh, okay, you know? okay. So you think about the <laughs> kinds of things that might have been proclaimed to in courtly love, for yes. example. yes. And that's the literary genre from which this stuff is derived, right? So you don't, you don't take it at face value as literally true, right? So all of that was really helpful to me. Now, um, uh, you may find, like, once you kind of swallow that, you realize, okay, I, I don't have to take this the way I've been told I have to take it. And by the way, there are a lot of really well-meaning Catholics that tell you there are all kinds of things you have to do, including RCA directors, that manifestly are wrong, that you don't have to. Just because they do it that way doesn't mean you do. You, you have to follow canon law mm -hmm. to follow the teaching of the church, but you don't have to follow the spirituality of your RCA director. That liberates you a lot, and you can have your own mind, and you can think critically, and you can be selective. Once you have that freedom, you may actually find that you like the devotions more than, than you do now, because you may come to take them with the requisite grain of salt, as it were, mm. with, the, with the kind of critical distance that I'm suggesting, and realize... Yeah, as love poetry, as as a you know as a as a way of kind of cultivating an interior affectivity for Mary, mm -hmm. this this works. But if you're not there, don't worry about it. Yeah, you'll get there or you won't. You'll find the spirituality within the Catholic Church that works for you. Laura, is that helpful for you? Very helpful. I'm so thankful that y'all took my call. Thank you so much. I'm so happy that you called. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate that. Call to communion here on EWTN. Jeanette is a first-time caller from Nebraska, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jeanette, what's on your mind today? Yeah, good afternoon. <clears throat> Thanks for taking my call. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to let you know that my husband and I were both Catholics, and I lost him a few years ago to cancer. And he was cremated by his choice, which was I was in agreement with, with too. But what I had done was uh, kept some of the ashes uh, with the plan that I would scatter them over our farm or our ranch. And since that time, in the last year or two, I realized in reading more about my Catholic faith is that the, all of the ashes should have been buried together. They should not have been separated. So my question now is, well, how do I handle the ashes, or what do I do with the ashes that I still have? Yeah, thanks. Well, is there any possibility that, um, I assume it was he, maybe, maybe he was interred in an, on a columbarium someplace, that, that uh, you could get access to that and restore the ashes to the, to the urn from which they were drawn? No, he was buried out in, a, in our local cemetery. Okay, well, um, so... You know, one of the reasons that people sometimes choose cremation is because it is the more affordable option, and I'm sensitive to that. And so I don't want to say anything that would impose upon you an undue financial burden. So, you know, you, and it you can do things like you could have them in uh, placed in a respectful repose in a columbarium or you know with the original ashes or something. If that's not if that's not financially feasible for you, um, you know, I don't. I don't, I don't, there's not a, there's not an instruction book on what to do here, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we know what we're supposed to do at the outset. And if you don't mm -hmm. do that, what, what's the remedy? Um, and if this remedy isn't available to you, 
you know, um, I hesitate to give a prescriptive answer. You might take it up with your parish priest. There you go. Jeanette, thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Tonight, don't forget to join us for Mother Angelica Live Classics at 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN television and radio. This week, Mother assures us that God calls us ultimately not to be his servant, but to be his friends. Next to him, we have a friend in Mary as well. Should be a wonderful program. They always are. Uh, Mother Angelica Live Classics tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television. Let's go now to the capital of Missouri, Jefferson City, and talk with James, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, James. What's on your mind today, sir? Dr. Andrews, uh, we have a priest in our diocese, at least one, he was an Episcopalian minister with a wife and kids, and he converted to Catholicism, and he's now a priest, so he has a family. And I know St. Peter was married, uh, probably other co- popes and priests after him. Uh, and so my que- I, I wrote an email to my priest here in Jefferson City at one point and said, well, if, if, all, if they were married, if they could still be married in that way, why can't priests just have the option to be married? Maybe that would help our priest shortage. And he, he, he thought I was a threat to the faithful. <laughs> okay, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, uh, first of all, the Church's teaching is that a married man can, under some circumstances, be ordained a priest, but an ordained man can cannot become married. So the traffic flows in one direction, not yeah. the other. Once yeah. you're ordained... That's your state of life. Yep. Right. So the married priest, if his wife dies, is not permitted to remarry. St. Paul wrote to Timothy that the bishop is to be the husband of but one wife. You get one, and then you're done. And if you're ordained, then you're in that state of life forever, and you're mm-hmm. celibate. You don't you don't take on a wife. Um, and of course, most priests are 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 not permitted to marry. Um, most seminarians, you know, they, they, they can't go take a wife and then get ordained. That doesn't count, not in the Latin rite of the Church. Um, and that's a discipline of the Church based on the example of Christ and the teaching of St. Paul that it's better for a man not to marry. Uh, but it's not an absolute prohibition. And as you correctly mentioned, there are some historical examples of, of married clergy in the West. And, and, of course, married clergy are far more common in the Catholic East. There are rites of the Church where it's far mm-hmm. more common. Um, now, uh, to raise the question, if if we could have married priests, would it alleviate the priest shortage? Is uh, uh, that is a question that a lot of people have asked, and and so far the Holy See has decided otherwise. Has said that's not that's not the way forward in in the vocations crisis. But just to raise the question is not a threat to the faithful. All right. So the suggestion that you have to keep your mouth shut and not share your opinions is. I think very harmful. I think that that's a threat to the faithful. Yeah. To tell people they can't share their thoughts or their spiritual needs or their questions about the faith, to tell them to, to shut down that kind of thing, is not helpful. So I, I thank you for calling and sharing your thoughts with this show. You can always call and share your thoughts with us. Now I would point out that the way Catholic theology has functioned since the twelfth century has been Catholic theologians have raised difficult and sometimes provocative questions on purpose Mm. and then reasoned about them. That method is called dialectic. It's what characterizes the works of the greatest theologians like Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas was not afraid to raise any question. I mean, he starts out in the Summa asking the question, is there a God? And then Thomas says, 
It doesn't seem like it, does it? But on the other hand, <laughs> here are some arguments. That's the way theology works. Right? So raising questions is perfectly okay. James, thanks so much for your call. We're going to stay in Missouri and go to Jerry, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jerry, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yesterday you had a call centered on cremation and the proper disposition of the ashes, I believe, yesterday. Yes. An individual has received a few, and then the rest of them have been scattered. In my case, my brother passed away two years ago, and I've got to give you a little bit of background. When my father died in 86, my mother sent my brother to the parish to retrieve the parish priest to come help give my father the last rites. Parish priest told my brother, it is not my job to send to every sick parishioner or every emergency and refuse to come. My father died the next morning from that nasty heart attack. My brother never set foot back in the Catholic Church. He died two years ago, and when he died, he said, I want to be cremated, and I want to be buried either on my property or on your property. Well, his children decided he couldn't be buried on his property because that was going to be sold, so he is buried on my property within a stone throw of his favorite place on my property. He is in his original uh, urn. That urn is sitting inside of another container. Then it's been buried. There is a headstone, and I maintain the entire area uh, around the headstone. There will never be anyone else buried there. There's no one else buried there. The face of what said yesterday, Dr. Andrews, I'm wondering if that is... All right, I can help you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jerry. So first of all, let me say something about this priest who said that it is not his job to offer the last rites to every dying parishioner that he has. Um, that is exactly his job. Yeah. That is 100% his job. And so you were you 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 were the victim of, um, of of pastoral mismanagement and abuse, and I I really am sorry that you got that answer. Uh, that is that is a hundred percent his job, and I I can't believe that a priest would say it's not my job to go offer last rites to the dying. I mean, in fact, in the code of canon law, um, you know, the code of canon law will say you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this other thing, but in case of danger of death. Everything else goes out the window. Sure. Everything goes out the window in danger of death. Yeah. So that is that is literally, well, kind of I, kind of bizarre to yeah, hear I'd that say, from a I'd priest. I'd say like you know there's 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 offering the holy sacrifice of the mass, and accompanying the dying. I mean those are pretty much the top two jobs of a priest. Yes. So I'm I'm really sorry about that. Now, mm -hmm. fortunately, from your description, you're okay. You're okay. Right. What the what the the code says is that the church should have its own cemeteries. Or at least areas in civil cemeteries where where uh, deceased members of the faithful can be properly blessed, but if that can't be achieved, uh, then the individual grave is to be properly blessed. And there's no there's no prohibition on burying somebody on ancestral land. I mean that would be kind of strange given yeah. that that's what like everybody in the Old Testament aspired to was to be buried on ancestral land. So that's mm -hmm. fine. You didn't do anything wrong with the cremation, it sounds like. It's all in one place, in one urn. You know, the only oversight was whether or not the gravesite itself was properly blessed. And, uh, you know, there's no expiration site, uh, date on a gravesite. So if it yeah. wasn't, you know, you go ask some other priest, other than the one that said it's not his job, go ask someone who knows that it's his job to please come out and bless 
your father's grave if you haven't already done so, and then you're good to go. There you go. Jerry, thanks so much uh, for your call. Do appreciate that. This seems to be uh, Cremains Day. We just heard from Terry in Grand Rapids who says the Archdiocese of Detroit has a program called Gather Them Home, and once a year they invite people with cremains to attend this Mass, and then the diocese, the, in this case the Archdiocese, will handle the proper handling of the remains. So we invite uh, our, our listeners to check with your diocese and see if they offer that there locally. What a great idea. Isn't it? That's a fabulous idea. Fantastic. All right, very good. And thank you so much uh, for that, uh, Terry. Appreciate hearing from you in Grand Rapids. Nancy's watching us on Facebook Live. She says, hi, guys. Dr. Andrews, please help. How do I explain to my husband that we need to go to Mass Sunday morning or Saturday vigil and that Mass during the week doesn't count? Um, yeah, so the way you explain it to him is you cite the law of the Church, Canon 1247. On Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation, the faithful are obliged to participate in the Mass, period. Boom. It's, it's the law of the Church. Yeah. It's the law of the Church. So, you know, I mean, that you, you, if you don't do it, you're breaking the law. Yeah, so there you go. Nancy, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Here's one now from Steve listening on uh, Sirius Satellite Radio in Florida. Uh, Dr. David Andrews, a little while back on the show, you shared an analogy between Catholicism and Protestantism that was a metaphor to a performance, like a play or a production of some sort. I thought it was an outstanding analogy, so simple but still profound and easy to understand. Could you please explain that again? No, because I have absolutely (laughs) no memory of having said that whatsoever at all. I'm glad it was great. I wish I could hear it because I don't know what I said. Ouch. Yes. Okay. You know, a well, lot of my analogies are really on the fly. I'm really, you know, they're from the hip, as it were. But you know what? Often they are just dynamite, uh, as in this case well, right I, here. I appreciate that. I wish I could remember what we were talking about. Uh, my recommendation, because, Steve, you, you said a little while back on the show. If he can pinpoint the date. If you can pinpoint the date, we, we podcast all of these programs going back to program number one all those years ago. So you can go to EWTN.com slash radio, look up podcasts, and find it that way very easily if you know the date. Here's a question now from Marie in Bethesda. Dr. Andrews, since worship is to make sacrifice, did a single Israelite worship only a few times a year when they went to Jerusalem for a festival like Passover? Yeah, uh, that that is the idea. Yeah. Wow. So so it it depended on the period of Israelite history. So there were other sacred sites in ancient Israel where people would offer sacrifice. It was eventually consolidated into the temple at Jerusalem. But this is why uh you know when Christ and his disciples wanted to celebrate the Passover, they they walked to Jerusalem because they had to make sacrifice there at the temple for the you know, for the Passover. Um and um so yeah. And it's why it's why Jews don't sacrifice today. Because the temple was destroyed. Mm. Well, there it is. Appreciate that. Thanks so much for your question. And uh, we just now heard from Sister Carmen in Jefferson City, Missouri. Sister Carmen says some cemeteries have a giant central area to keep cremains. This is for people who can only afford the urn. Interesting. Okay, good to know. Good yeah. to know. Appreciate that. Thank that is you. that is a good thing as well. Mark in Vancouver, Canada says, Dr. Anders, love your program. Here's my question. Is Jesus the Word of God or is the Bible the Word of God? Okay, false dichotomy. Ah. False dichotomy. Um, uh, Scripture explicitly teaches that Christ is the Word of God. 
all right? But it is, it's common Christian practice to refer to the Scriptures as the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are not the only things that are referred to as the Word of God. So you know, most of the prophets would say about their own inspirations, well, the Word of the Lord came to me, saying, mm-hmm. right? So it, the Word of God can, can refer to, to any revelation, but the preeminent revelation, of course, is Christ. Very good. Thanks so much uh, for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Here's a question for you. This is from uh, Gene in Winslow, Arizona. Dr. Anders, what is the significance of the dwarves in Narnia and their intransigency in the last battle? What a what a fantastic question. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they are types, obviously, of, of human response. And the, 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 the complaint of the dwarves is that they were taken in once, and uh, they were jaded, and so they were determined to not be taken in again. They didn't want to be gullible, and so they became obdurate instead. Oh, reminds me of the Who. Won't get fooled again. There you go. Big, big song. And here's one from Anne. Could you please help me choose a Bible for my son? My son is 34 years old. He wants to learn more about his faith, and this will be his first Bible. Well, you know, I like the New Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. That's what I read. You know, if you want to get something with a little some footnotes in it, you can get the Ignatius Study Bible version of the NRSV CE. There are also some online Bibles, correct? Tons of them. Would you recommend any of those? Well, if she wants to give him a gift that he can unwrap, that'd be kind of tough to package. Well, <laughs> there's always that. And now, now you have uh, talked in the past about a Bible online, an online Bible that will have side by side. So I, well, it's not a Bible. There are a number of Bible websites that I make use of on a regular basis, mm-hmm. even during this show. One of them that I use is a Bible Gateway. I don't think it's a Catholic uh, institution, but they have a ton of Bible translations, and it's very easily searchable, which is why I like it. Um, Another one that I like a lot is uh, BibleHub.com, which I really appreciate it precisely because it enables me to do that interlinear uh, text search so I can see the English, Greek, and Hebrew side by side. Um, New Advent, which is a Catholic website has a Bible link, and it's just one translation of the Bible. I think it's the Knox translation. Uh-huh. But it also gives you in parallel columns the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which is you rarely find, and wow. all in Greek, so you have to know a little bit of Greek. Um, and uh, and then the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible as well. So re- really interesting parallel columns there. Lots of resources for you, Anne. But if you're looking for that, uh, you know, something you can wrap up, put in a box, you may want to check out the uh, Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. Dr. 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 David Anders. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.